So our text tonight is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 through chapter 9, verses 12. Hear the word of God. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much may man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have already perished, for they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at uh, which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to, uh, to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all of them, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. That is the word of God. Thanks be to God indeed. So Wednesday last week, I was over at a friend's house. They live in a barn, and his office is in a tent. It's like a yurt tent. He calls it the tent of meeting, which I think is amazing. But we were going to speak about the more mystical aspects of Jesus' incarnation over good coffee. It was an incredibly wonderful, nerdy theologian time. But there were two things that stood out for my conversation. The first was both of us agreed that Ecclesiastes, what we're reading, what we've been studying so far this year, is one of the most powerful books in the Bible, especially if we look at it through the lens of faith in Jesus. And then second, we discussed how we both got where we were at. And not physically how we got there, because I drove and he walked from the barn into the tent, but really how we got to the place where we were in our faith. What was our journey? especially our journey as we were kind of asking and digging these, these deep and meaningful theological questions. And what he, he said, and, and I agreed with him, is that it really boiled down to an ontological question. And the question was, who is he? And I've asked that very same question, who am I? And maybe all of you have asked that question, who are you? What are we actually here for? What is our purpose? Because I think if I took a poll, you would all agree, this is the time when you all agree, that we are all created for a purpose. We agree? Good, resoundingly. <laughs> but 
But I don't think that Solomon, when he was writing this book, was any different because there is nothing that is new under the sun. And we know that this particular book is this reflective look back on Solomon's life, right? He's, he's looking back as he's getting close to death and he's reflecting on the things that were wise and the things that were unwise. And he's pondering and contemplating his life, which is what most of us do, especially as we get older, right? We ponder and contemplate our lives as well. But this isn't a book about the meaning of life. It's a theology of life and work, because life and work actually have meaning. And that's kind of been Solomon's point the whole time as we've studied this, right? Is that our lives and our work have meaning because they were given to us by God. Even if we can't understand what that meaning is. Which is exactly how he starts out in verses 16 and 17. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then all I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So kind of the crux of being wise is realizing that all of us have limitations. That we have to accept the fact that despite how hard we try, we actually can't know everything. And that's why I enjoy the discussions that I have with my buddy because we're nerding out on things and we're, we're growing deeper in these things and we're asking these deep questions. And then after I've done that, what I realize is I actually know even less than when I started. You think you go in with some, some presuppositions of what your knowledge is and then you dig a little deeper and then you start asking more questions and you go, man, the gap and what I, what I really want to know is even bigger than what I thought. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Bible and all of its wisdom in the Old Testament Deuteronomy says in 29:29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so while, while he and I were discussing these types of questions, why are we here? Who are we? Solomon's pondering these same kinds of things. And it comes down to something that Solomon has not been afraid to mention many times as, as we've gone up to this ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, this crux of things that he's not afraid to discuss in Ecclesiastes, and that's death. Ah, death. We're going to talk about death again today. <laughs> and why? And he says in verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Everybody here knows that we're going to die. This happens especially as you start getting older. As you, you start reflecting back, as you start creeping closer to the point of when your life is going to end. It's, it's why as we get older, most of us start thinking and pondering more about the meaning of our lives. Where we're spending our time, where we're spending our energy. That's why we reflect back and we look for wisdom. It's why Solomon is reflecting back and looking for wisdom. April for us is a huge month of birthdays. We have, let's see, we have Zach's birthday, Kristen's birthday, my mom's birthday, my mother-in-law's birthday, and they're all within like a two-week period, which also makes this kind of a big season of reflection for all of us in our family as well as we're pondering our year around the sun and the next one that's coming up and things that we did well, things that we didn't do well, where we want to grow, what we want to change. Because as we get older, we start to realize that we're not here forever. These seasons actually remind us of three kind of uncomfortable realities that death is certain, death is sad, and sometimes death happens all of a sudden. Death is certain. It is guaranteed to happen to every single one of us. The good, the bad, and everything in between. Verses 2 and 3 again. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, 
to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Death. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The same event happens to all. Nobody can escape physical death. It is a certainty in all of our lives. And of course, because of Adam's fall, we are the children of man. We are all subject to death. Unfortunately, friends, death is unavoidable. But not only is death certain, but it's also really sad. Verses 4 through 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So we've established that we the living know that we're going to die. For we just determined that death is certain. But then Solomon goes on to remind us not only is death certain, but there's no more reward, and ultimately the memories of us will finally fade away. We talked about that especially at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. Because the dead no longer love or hate or even have envy, they have no more share in this physical world. And this is a sad and stark reality, especially for people who are unbelievers, for those who actually have no hope. While they're alive, they have hope, but death is the end of their journey. It's, it's the finality of it, and you can see that in people that don't have hope for anything greater than this world. It's not a place of joy. And thankfully, it is not the end of our story. We're going to get to that. But I know this firsthand. I know the sadness of death. I know a lot of you, because I know your stories, also know the sadness of death. A week from Tuesday will be May 3rd, which will be the 23rd anniversary of my dad dying. He's been dead for longer than half of my life which is very odd thinking about it now. But the really sad part is that as time goes on, I think about him less. And that's not intentional. It's not because I didn't love him, because I don't. I, I, I miss him greatly. I wish that he could see the kids and see Kristen and, and see this wonderful group of Christian misfits that gather here every week. But time has passed. A lot of life has passed. And I was pretty young when it happened. And as time and life goes on, even with the intention of keeping that memory alive, it fades because that's what happens, because death is sad. So not only is death certain and sad, but we also know it can happen all of a sudden. I'm going to jump ahead, but you'll see why in a second. In verses 11 and 12, again, I saw that under the sun that the race is not the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, we knew my dad was going to die, but his diagnosis was all of a sudden. He was diagnosed when he was 55 and he had probably had cancer 10, 12 years before that time when they diagnosed him. So we had three and a half years before he passed away to say goodbye and had the opportunity to be there when he died and to tell him that I loved him and be part of that. But it's not always that way. Sometimes death just happens. A fatal car, to, uh, car accident. Yesterday, I don't think anybody was injured. We were driving to, we were headed to the zoo yesterday and we were going down Colfax, kind of you know, weaving through city streets. And we saw fire trucks and police cars and there was this white, I don't know, it was Honda or 
a cord or whatever, and a tree in the wind had fallen and crushed on top of the car. You're just driving around, and a tree could fall on you. Surprise heart attack, a stroke, accident at work, skiing into a tree. Maybe you had cancer and you're in regression, and then you die the next weekend. We had a friend who, who had a family member that that happened to. They were in regression, and then they died the next weekend. I could go on. There's a million examples of this, but you get the point. Sometimes death happens so suddenly. What did I say? Regression? Oh, I meant remission. Sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Regression, remission. Appreciate that. Words are important. But it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, flips, it flips people's lives on their heads when death happens so sudden. And part of my job as a pastor is that I participate in the life cycle events of people like you. And as I shepherd people through those life cycle events, one of the life cycles that I'm responsible for are funerals. And over the last couple of years, some of the funerals I've done, and I'll do funerals for people that don't have pastoral staff associated with them. I'm plugged into a couple funeral homes and volunteer to be able to conduct funerals for people that need them. Sometimes the stories are incredibly painful and incredibly sudden. What it's taught me is that we really don't actually know our time whether we're terminally ill or a rogue bus just happens to hit us some, at, at some point. We aren't in control of any of that. And that's where I think that the kind of the fad of you only live once comes from, right? The realization that death is certain and death is sad and it can be sudden. And so it, this, this realization of that turns out for most people to kind of be a fork in the road. There's, there's two paths you can go down. The first one is the YOLO path. You only live once. It's deep selfishness. You do whatever makes you feel good. We talked about it. We did Hebrews last year and a little bit in the Ecclesiastes, that kind of hedonistic, narcissistic, it's all about me lifestyle. I do what I want because it feels good and I don't really care. But the problem is it lacks God. So the only person you're really living for is to fulfill your own desires. And the reality of the, the YOLO kind of lifestyle is it's actually never fulfilling. It does feel good. I promise you that. Sometimes church and pastors downplay that. They, they pretend like it isn't actually fun, but it is for a really short period of time. But it's never fulfilling. It's never enough. You're always seeking more. It leaves you empty and desiring things that maybe you can't have every single time. And in 2022 and 2021, this definitely seems to be the road most traveled, the road of honoring the self. We have created industries that promote just the self, right? Uh, that people believe if they just get to own or do or visit, then they're gonna be so much happier. And then of course, we were talking about this before, social media just helps, you guys know I hate social media, cancel all of your accounts right away. But it, it promotes this fallacy, right? It promotes this live your best life now and then tell everybody that you're living your best life so they can feel jealous that your life is better than their life. And then they can go try to, to dig into that world deeper. And of course, it's just a, it's kind of a, an infinite loop of stuff and vacations and job changes and bigger houses and fancier cars. And you know what happens to it in the end? It's vanity. That's what Solomon's been saying this whole time. It's a breath of the wind. Can't take it with you. Your memory's still going to fade. You're still just as dead. It's emptiness and, and it's perishing. And it's a breath of a wind. So then what? Well, there is another path. Thank God. I won't leave you without hope. It's the road less traveled. The road through the narrow gate. And it's the road that leads to the Lord, right? Uh, Matthew 7, 14, Jesus says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrow gate, this road that is less traveled, is the one that my friend and I on Wednesday spent all this time discussing. 
Because if we're really trying to figure out who we are, then we really have to figure out why we're actually here. And thankfully, the, the road that leads to everlasting life and everlasting joy is going to provide us the answers. Have any of you heard of the Latin term memento mori? Nobody? Ooh, what's Latin? I'm not going to put you on the spot. The kids are learning Latin in school. But it's a reminder of the inevitability of death. And what it really means is, remember, you must die. So what is the purpose of all of Solomon's memento mori? Is it to drag us down into a depressed state before we fellowship and have drinks and dinner here in a little bit? That our worldly bodies will ultimately perish and it's all vanity and nobody's going to remember you and the good and the bad all go to the same place? No, it is not. But what it is there to remind us is that we're not actually really in control of anything. We pretend a lot that we're in control, right? Especially the pilots in the room. And for those of you who know me, remember that I am a recovering control freak. I was the president of Control Freaks Anonymous, but we never had any meetings because I couldn't handle anybody else being there. <laughs> so I know this very, very, very well. But if we're being really honest, like if we're being functionally honest, what is it we are actually in control of? What is it any of you are actually functionally in control of in your life? Nothing, really. So then who is in control? Because if we look in our universe, there appears to be order and com complexity, right? DNA, seasons, really terrible weather, delicious fruit that grows on trees, a multitude of different species, the fact that the sun is the exact distance it needs to be from Earth to sustain life, or the fact that you have 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body, Again, that list could go on all night long. But the point is that everything in creation lends itself to the fact that there is a creator. God, the creator, the sustainer, is in ultimate control. Of course, we have to have dominion over the world, and we're called to interact with the creation that he's placed us in. But he's in control. And he's in control of things like life and death. Because he's sovereign over everything. Nothing actually escapes his hand. And so it's because of that reality, when it really sinks into us, that we should be drawn to the path of wisdom. That the path that leads us through the narrow gate to that road less traveled, which will actually be the road of joy. You may ask, and it would be a great question, Vaughn, if you did ask, you can ask me, how are we to be joyful with all this looming memento mori? <laughs> That's a great question. But, but the reality is, how can we be joyful with this? If it's all just so terrible and it feels so heavy and everybody's just going to die anyways, how can we be here and be joyful? Well, if we accept that God is in control of everything and because he is who he says he is, that everything here actually has purpose, then what we can do is focus ourselves on walking the path of wisdom. And it's the path that actually draws us into the real. Remember the purpose-driven life? This is the real purpose-driven life. And it's one that ends up putting us in a place of awe and service to the Lord. So now you'll see why I skipped ahead. Because if we go to verses 7 through 10, he says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. 
And I've said this before as we've worked through Ecclesiastes, but I love these exhortations that Solomon puts in the middle of the passage because they come at these incredibly unexpected times and they end up functioning as this huge source of encouragement. This is the sixth of such exhortations so far and it's the most emphatical thus far. He says, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. That is the reason that we can be joyful. This is the reason that my buddy and I were nerding out about the theology of the incarnation, salvation that can only come through Jesus as fully man, fully God, and then ultimately his death on the cross. Because we're his, we're his adopted children. We are predestined to be his since before the creation of the world. We know that doesn't mean that we don't sin or we don't have a bad, we don't struggle, but we do know that it does mean that we are forgiven. But there's more than just that. Ultimately, what it really means is we're restored. We are restored to our original state because of his death. He draws us to him. He approves of us. And see, that's actually what makes our life meaningful and not full of vanity and meaninglessness. This is why when we eat our bread and, and we drink our drink and we drink our wine, we do it with a merry heart. We do it with joy because we're doing it for his glory. He's the one that provided us the bread and the wine to begin with. We come wearing our pure garments. Uh, uh, they're white, they're pure, because he's clothed us anew. He's given us a new chance at life every single moment. Thy family had a little bit of a struggle about 20 minutes before all of you showed up. There were some raised voices. Not all of us were participating in our best selves, including me. And we got to make it anew. We sat down at the couch and we brought it back together and we, we extended grace and love and care for each other and we restored it. That's why we should enjoy our wives and our husbands all the day of our lives, because God has given us our portion and our lot. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but if we're content and we're trusting, then we know that our portion and our lot and this exact moment where we are is where we're supposed to be, because it has meaning and it has purpose and it comes from him. We're not in control, so we relinquish that control to him, and then we joyfully embrace the place that we're at whether it's full of suffering or it's full of resounding happiness. He's given us our portion, our lot, and we rejoice in whatever it is because it comes from him. See, the life without purpose is vanity. That's the breath of the wind that Solomon keeps saying over and over and over and over again. It is the forgotten life of meaningless that Solomon continues to warn us about. The flip side is that the life in the Lord is joyful and meaningful. He even tells you to enjoy your work. How many of you here have always enjoyed your work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we're called to work. We know that. We know that work is part of the, the purpose and the reason God's called us here. So we should do our work for his glory too. And we do it with might. We, we work hard. We, we do it with the strength of the Lord behind us. Even when we don't love it. Even when work is sometimes a drag. And everybody knows that sometimes work can be a drag. Why? Why do we do this? Because God is king over everything, even the workplace. When I say that we should do everything for the glory of God, I really actually mean we should do everything for the glory of God. It should impact every single thing that we do. I was saying to my friend on Wednesday, it's fun to spar theologically because it's fun to nerd out in that space, but where theology really matters is here. We should be living our theology out in our hands, how we love people, how we care for people, how we apologize when we really miss the mark, how we try to give each other grace, how we have to receive grace, how we forgive, how we are forgiven. You can do this in your work. You can do this in your relationships. You can extend this in every sphere of your life. 
I say this all the time, but it's just so resounding as we go through Ecclesiastes. But without God, life has no meaning. If there's no higher purpose for us to serve, then everybody here is just an accident. A couple billion years of goo eventually turned into us and just do whatever you want to do. Who cares? But we all know that's not true. We know that all of us are more than the shell that contain us. We all know that the soul exists. I had to laugh. A friend of mine's an atheist and an air traffic controller, and I had an emergency in the plane a few weeks ago, whatever, a month ago. Had to declare an emergency. So they had to ask me, fuel on board? What's the other question they have to ask, pilot friends? Souls on board. And I gave him a hard time when we talked on the phone later. I was like, you don't even believe in the soul. He's like, well, of course I believe in the soul. I was like, well, where do you think it comes from? (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is once we accept Christ as king over everything, then we get to see who we really are that our identity is adopted sons and daughters through him, it actually opens our eyes to what our purpose is. And our purpose is serving creation with joy because we are a thoughtful and integral part of it. Each one of us was predestined to be here on purpose with each of your unique characteristics and your unique skills and your unique gifts. There's nobody else like each individual one of you. You were all created on purpose. And see, that's what I was searching for in my faith journey. My faith journey has been long and windy and confusing. But I was thinking about, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? In Matthew 7, 7 through 8, it says, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. See, the wisdom is there. Psalm keeps exhorting us to seek wisdom. And what we know is that that wisdom only comes through relationship with God, with relationship through Jesus. So our purpose becomes to be a light. You've heard us say this a lot of times, a light on a hill, a light to the nations. But we do that when we live joyfully the life that God has given us, the life that we're not ultimately in control of, the light that he the life that he is constantly breathing into us. This life really and truly is a gift. It is a precious gift from God. We get to use it to help grow his kingdom, to spread love, to bring people into community, to live our values, not in like the Christian merit badgy kind of sash kind of way. You know, I don't like that very much. But in the way that we actually impact other people, the way that we care for them, the way that we serve them. It's that, that's the reason that we can proceed through life joyfully no matter what is thrown at us. He has shown us the, the narrow gate. He's shown us this path left traveled. I actually said to Grace the other night, we were hanging out, and I said, you know, if you really want to be like edgy and countercultural in 2022, just be a professing Christian. That's, a, that's about as edgy as you can possibly be. You'd be. Like, no, I actually believe God's in control of everything. <gasps> but what's really beautiful about that is it provides you a, a life with deep meaning and deep joy. And it's joy that doesn't disappear in the vanity of our life, in the memento mori. This is eternal joy. It's joy that that comes from knowing that our loving God has placed us exactly where we are supposed to be. And that when we die, we have eternal life rejoined with him. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He is our refuge. He is good. His creation is good. His, his, 
His love for us is good. He continuously renews and restores us and draws us back to him. He provides us with wisdom and meaning. He provides us with care and support, even with love and judgment. In Sean O'Donnell, the kind of the primary commentary I've been using as I prepare these messages, he says this when he's talking about verse 7 where it says go. He says, the command go is a wake-up call. Stop bemoaning death's certainty. Stop lamenting over death's sadness. Stop stressing out about death's suddenness. Get over it and go. Go out for dinner, or at least go to the dinner table. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. That should be a big wake-up call for all of us. That we should go, get over it, and be merry. So I'll charge you tonight to go joyfully from this place with a full belly and an even fuller heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders of the path less traveled and the encouragement for us to stay on that narrow road. It's hard sometimes, Lord. It's hard to be joyful in times of persecution, suffering, and struggle. But I just pray as we leave this place and we head about our weeks and we interact with other people, whether it's family or friends or at work, that we do it with joy. When we don't feel like joy, being joyful, Lord, we can, we can pray back to you and ask us, ask you to fill us back with the joy that you've implanted in us. Allow us to accept our lot and our portion for what it is, to be content with where we are at this moment, not where we think that we should be or discontent with what we don't have, but just so gracious that you provide us so much more than we actually need and that our wants always seem to exceed our needs. So help realign us, Lord. Help us be present in this place and just be kind and generous and joyful in everything that we do. Amen.